Mark Frank has a great sense of timing. He graduated from West Point just in time for 9-11, and he had a summer job at Lehman soon before its collapse. Then a few years ago, he had an insight that a mental health wave was coming, as stigma fell, mental health parity rules took effect, and his stresses increased. He co-founded Sondermind, where, as CEO, he's helping make behavioral health more accessible, approachable, and utilized. The company's had great success and has plenty of room to grow before running out of opportunities to improve the system. In this episode of the Health Biz Podcast, Mark describes how his upbringing in Atlanta, Japan, and Germany shaped how he looked at the world and how family members have influenced his enlistment in the military and his path with Sondermind. I'm your host, David Williams, and I hope you enjoy the show. Meanwhile, if your healthcare or life sciences business needs strategy consulting, I'd be happy to discuss. We have two decades of experience in developing robust strategies for telehealth and remote patient monitoring companies whose strategic opportunities and challenges are similar to Sondermine's. You can reach me at dwilliams at healthbusinessgroup.com. Mark Frank, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. Thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be part of this. Listen, we're going to get into a lot about what you're doing now, but I want to start out with uh, your background, your upbringing, and, and we'll sort of slowly work into the, into the present day. So tell me a little bit about your, your childhood and any, any particular influences that, that stand out, anything that we should, we should know about? My childhood was probably not the norm for most American children. I, I was born in Atlanta, and when I was six, I moved to Tokyo. My dad worked for IBM. So lived there for three years, right downtown Tokyo. I went to an American school, but that was obviously really a, a different you know, culture, a completely different culture and, and just really seeing things from a different lens. And then I moved back to Atlanta for two years. And then I moved to Germany for two and a half, three years after that. And then it's the same thing. And my mom actually happens to be German. And then I moved back to Atlanta and I finished out my my high school time, you know, middle school and high school or end of middle school and high school in Atlanta. And so, you know, I think that some of the influence is just moving around and, and seeing different cultures and being really subject to pretty drastic change as a child uh, in a positive way, but it influences you. And it, I think it made me a lot more comfortable with change and uncertainty as an adult, even though maybe as a kid, I didn't always love it. But there was, yeah. there was this other aspect, actually. We, we always moved back to the same house. So the house that my parents live in today is the house that they brought me home to from the hospital when I was born. And so that's also kind of unique in and of itself, it's just, you know, the moving back and forth, but always back to the same house. Hey, so it sounds like you have a solid anchor point, but then some pretty big uh, swings between uh, Japan, Germany, and, and so on. I, uh, I've just interviewed somebody for the, for the podcast uh, the CEO of a company called Proprio, and, and he spent some formative time in Japan, not as a child, but of his own volition after studying uh, Japanese in school. And we actually we actually touched on that because the you know Japanese perspective is really so different, um, especially as the world is homogenized. Japan then and still now is very different to be there. Very very different. I mean, the East, Eastern culture and Western culture are so different. I mean, you could say Germany and the United States are different, but those are shades of differences. Japan is very different than the United States. Great. So then it sounds like you went to uh, to West Point and your, your timing was auspicious in the sense that you managed to <laughs> finish up just before 9-11. That's so right. What was, it, what was that all about? Well, I went to West Point and my dad had been in the army before I was born. 
my older sister, who is a, a little more than a decade older than me, had enlisted in the army. We didn't come from a lot of means. And so she enlisted in the army, uh, served for a couple of years active duty, and then and then got her undergrad and it was paid for by the GI Bill. So I was, exp and, and when I was in Germany, I two of my three years, I'd gone to school on the army base as an expat. So I was exposed to the military. West Point was just, it was really about, uh, it was a leadership academy. I mean, that's what it is, right? You go there to learn how to lead people. And I wanted to do that. And so I, uh, I, I was always drawn to leadership, even, even at a relatively young age, you know, in, in junior high and in high school. And I thought this is what I want to do when I'm older. I didn't know what industry necessarily and things like that. So that was, you know, that, that was part of the impetus for going there. When I went, I, I entered West Point in the mid nineties and you know, we were in arguably one of the most peaceful times in world history at that point. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, and it was like the end of history, right? It was just like sustained <laughs> yeah. peace and prosperity. Yeah. The, uh, it was like, peace dividend and all that kind of thing. Exactly. Right. And yeah. so, you know, it was, uh, it was a really interesting time. And, and I think the, you know, the, the shift that people in my, my class and, and, you know, one or two years above and, and below me uh, who entered West Point, or, any, or, or the military for that matter, uh, pre 9-11, but then served you know, through deployments and things like that. Uh, it was again, like this huge upheaval. It's very different than somebody who you know, entered West Point in 2004, right? Like you knew what you were getting into. You right. knew there was a conflict in Iraq, you knew and there were you know, tens of thousands of troops there, Afghanistan. So you knew absolutely that you were going to be deployed. For those of us who that wasn't the case, you know, it was like, oh, I don't know. And even just the teaching and the mindset and the things you talked about in uh, in school, right, as a cadet was just very different. So I I found it really interesting. I remember when I, so I, would, I deployed during Operation Iraqi Freedom 1. So that was the initial invasion. So even that was like total uncertainty. I mean, people, we deployed thinking we'd be back stateside in six months that we would. Right. We thought it was going to be a rehash of Desert Storm 1. Right. You know, you go in there, you're there for a little bit and then everybody's back and there's no more troops there. That was wrong, obviously. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, my battalion commander, who now is actually fairly well known, he's General Gustav Perna. He's the COO of Operation Warp Speed. He's a four star general. So this yeah. whole COVID deployment, he was my battalion commander, my lieutenant colonel when I was when we deployed. And. I remember him telling me, Mark, it's okay. You can sell your house because I was supposed to go to the captain's course about four months after we, we went to Iraq. Uh, and he said, you can sell your house. Tell your wife it's okay. She can quit her job. And, uh, you know, you'll be back by, by June. This was 2003. And one of the hardest conversations I ever had to have in my life was calling my wife uh, about two weeks before I was supposed to be home, three months after I deployed saying i'm not coming home and well when are you coming home i don't know well yeah. should i get my job back because i choose a nurse should i just I, I just gave my two weeks notice yesterday right <laughs> I said, yeah get your job back because i don't know how long it'll be and did she sell the house too while she was at it or? luckily it was not as strong a market as these days and so the house was, thank goodness was on, was, yeah, it was on the market for eight weeks and it didn't sell that wouldn't happen anymore and so she was able to pull it off uh but yeah, it was a really, it was a really interesting time. And, you know, I, I found from a leadership standpoint, it was obviously extremely formative, not just, not just deployment and, and you know, leading troops in a, in a combat environment, but 
more just everything leading up to it. And, and again, having people who didn't necessarily, you know, we had troops who were like, I didn't sign up for this, even though you did, because you knew it was a hypothetical, right. you know, possibility. But if you enlisted in 1999, you know, you didn't think that there was a scenario you would be shooting people or getting shot at. Yeah. So, so in 05, you were discharged yep. and then what? And then I went to business school and I actually was not sure that I even wanted to go to business school. So I had gotten a master's while I was in the army, pre-Iraq. I had gotten a master in computer information systems. That was my undergrad was in computer science. And I got a real estate license when I came back. I was interested in real estate. So I, I was always interested in that. I had gotten, I'd gotten a bartending, not a license, but I'd gone to the bartending academy for, for four weeks and learned how to make drinks and things like that. And um, and I said, well, maybe I'll, I'll try this out. I was always interested in business and, and in, you know, just how companies worked and things like that. So ended up, you know, applying to a number of business schools and, and actually chose Kellogg predominantly because I decided I did not want to go into finance. Specifically, I did not want to go into investment banking. I read a book called Monkey Business and another one called Liar's Poker. And those two books yeah. could have shied me away from so the institutional security side, investment banking, which is what monkey business focused on, and then sales and trading. And I said, I'm going to do consulting. So I went to Kellogg and I did an internship before I started business school with a, a guy who had done consulting for 20 plus 30 years, management consulting. And his last part of his year had been a lot of M&A, last part of his career has been M&A integration. And so he was actually at a firm that was an M&A advisory shop. It was an investment bank. But I didn't know that because I was coming out of the army. I didn't know anything. So I said, well, I'll work with this guy before I start business school. And I realized I was really interested in M&A. I thought it was super interesting. And here was a person who I trusted. He was a West Point grad, an HBS grad. And he said, Mark, you could do consulting, but your DNA is one that you probably will get a little frustrated by the lack of closure and execution around consulting projects. He's like, I thought it was great and really intellectually stimulating, but it wasn't for it was it was for me, but I don't think it would necessarily be for you. So that steered me away a little bit from consulting and that opened my eyes up to some other industries. And so ended up jumping into investment banking actually just for the summer to try it out. Yeah. Did my summer summer at Lehman Brothers in 2006. Nice. Yeah, you were just that's good you didn't stick with that one for another couple of years, right? So it's funny everybody yeah. says, well you, you 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 how did you know not to take your offer from Lehman <laughs> and go to Morgan Stanley? Yeah. And you, you, right. did you did you see something that was going on? Did you see? Did you think that you know this was all going to collapse? I said no. Of course I didn't see anything. I I yeah. just I wanted to do healthcare, and my wife at the time was a nurse and had a nurse as a nurse practitioner, and I was interested in healthcare. And and the head of the Morgan Stanley Healthcare Practice led the Chicago office. I also would prefer to stay in Chicago. And Morgan Stanley, one of the few bulge brackets in Chicago, did full M and A execution out of the Chicago office. It's like you get to do healthcare, you do full execution for M&A, I'll do some coverage. And that was the choice. And so, you know, there was nothing special about not going to Lehman. Yeah. All right. Well, it's good because you seem to know how to call them a couple of years in advance. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. So at Kellogg, so what was it like being a combat vet uh, there in, in business school? You know, it was it was great. I mean, there was a, there's a really strong veterans community. At, at most of the business schools, they have veterans associations, veterans clubs. Uh, for the time that I was there, 2005, 2007, there weren't that many of us. There were a handful of veterans, but there weren't as many who had you know, been in a conference. So actually, I, I, I attribute my experience in the military to how I got into investment banking, uh, a lot of it, because I think people just wanted to hear in the interview process, you know, when you're interviewing for, for your internship and for your full-time roles, and you've got VPs and whatnot that are interviewing uh, MBA students, 
I had interesting stories. And, you know, I could talk about things that wasn't, oh, I did consulting at Deloitte for four years and I did, or I was at this, you know, I was an analyst investment banking or whatever. I was an accountant or something like that. And so I think they just, I, I was a rarity. There weren't a lot of other, yeah. you know, guys who had, uh, who had been in Iraq who were applying. You know, fast forward three, four years, littered with, you know, people because there were just that many more deployments over the, you know, between 2003 to 2008, 2009. Yeah, I graduated from college in 1989, and, and Operation Desert Storm was uh, occurred, you know, within a year of that. So when I went to business school, I graduated '94, uh, started '92. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a number of veterans uh, of the uh, the first Gulf War uh, that were there, and it was kind of a new thing at HBS. Certainly, they had military people, and they they go back to you know having having had roles in World War II and and World War One, but you know, since probably before the Vietnam era, it really was, it was a kind of a new class of people to have there. And I think it was, uh, maybe they, maybe they learned something from it by the time you got, uh, you got to business school, but it was an interesting, uh, experience for yeah. sure. So let's bring it to the, to the present Sondermind. Yeah. So what, what need did you see? Why, why Sondermind? So, and what should we worry, what should we worry about two years from now, given your, uh, your previous <laughs> experience starting wars and collapsing <laughs> investment banks? So, uh, Sondermine, you know, I, I when I left investment banking, I I went into healthcare as an operator. I started a company that was in in radiation oncology, uh, treating patients with brain tumors, lung cancer, prostate cancer. So it became a management service organization, and and a couple of the companies that I co-founded around the same time as that, while I was running Next Oncology and building that up, and I saw a couple things, you know, but it really started you know, from a chronological order, it actually started first with my sister. So my younger sister is a licensed professional counselor. She's a therapist. And so I had seen her go from, you know, undergrad to her master's program to then working in an employed setting as a therapist, and then jumping into private practice after about four or five years. And that was always her goal. Her, her goal going into this field was I want to, I want to be, you know, my own boss and I want to have my private practice. And I want to treat clients. And the struggles that she had in starting and growing her private practice were immense. And I remember talking to her and I'm, again, I'm running a management service organization. I'm very familiar with the fact that across healthcare, there are slews of companies that are focused on taking off the plate, all the things that aren't providing clinical care for providers. Right. And, and sort of, uh, professionalizing, and I don't mean that in, in, in a clinical sense, but I mean that in like a business sense, you know, various verticals and industries within healthcare. And I remember talking to her and saying, well, if you're having a hard time getting clients, why don't you go and network with the insurance companies? Now, this was back in like 2010. Insurance yeah. companies were, they had their, their behavioral health networks were, quote, closed. And so she said, I try, and they say no. And But then she said, even beyond that, I don't know how to do billing and collections. I don't know how to to get in network and do this credentialing stuff. And, you know, it's just me. I don't have a staff. I don't have a receptionist. And it's just, I, I don't want to, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to spend my, I thought I, I didn't go into this field to do that. And the rates aren't that great. And I said, but there's gotta be, you know, organizations that do that MSOs or independent provider associations, IPAs, things like that. And so I had that idea kind of back in my head, fast forward a few years, I, I experienced my own just struggle of trying to find a therapist and trying to use my in-network insurance benefits, partially because I knew the system and I was just stubborn. I didn't want to pay out of pocket. I, I 
I could have afforded probably 125, uh, you know, 150, 150 a session. Uh, but I wanted to use my insurance benefits and I knew how the system was supposed to work. And so, you know, you call, you go on the insurance directory, you put in your zip code, you, you say, I'm looking for a therapist. You click the box that's accepting new clients. And then you call the first one because there's no information. You don't know if they're a good fit and they don't answer. And you leave a message and you wait for a callback and they don't call back and you call the next one. And she answers, but she says she's not taking clients anymore. And the next one isn't taking insurance clients anymore, but says you can pay out of pocket, which you're not supposed to do if you're in network and on and on it goes. And even to the point where it's like, okay, you finally find that you know unicorn who is taking new clients, accepts your insurance and has some availability, but then they go, actually, I don't deal with the stuff you're dealing with. <laughs> like, oh my God, this is so challenging. And so finally found somebody, great clinician, you know, a, a really, a really good provider. But even beyond that, the, the consumer experience was just really challenging. You know, you're trying to pay with your copay, you got to pay right a check and try to reschedule an appointment. And it's really a pain. And it's in a little basement office with no windows. And, and I was like, gosh, this is, you know, here's the, here are these two problems, these two sides of the, of the marketplace, right? You have the provider side, you know, supply side, therapist side. And I, I saw all these problems that my sister was facing. And then you have the client side, which I had seen and I knew about from others. And so I started digging more and I was fortunate. My, my older cousin is a clinical psychologist. She's about a year older than me. We're, we're very close. And her husband's a psychiatrist. So I, I had actually a pretty good network to go to, not just them, but you know, their colleagues and start to really dig in and understand what are the problems that you're facing as providers. And, and that all came maybe with back to sort of like seeing a little bit into the future. I started seeing in 2011, 2012, I remember talking to a lot of people and saying, you guys see this wave that's coming, this huge wave of mental health problem. Uh, and it was triggered maybe by my understanding of reading through the, the Affordable Care Act and reading through the Parity Act and saying, this is going to be addressed, there's research that shows this is how you reduce population health costs. This is how you can improve overall physical wellness, not, not, not just mental wellness, but physical wellness can be improved by this. And it's being destigmatized. I remember, you know, seeing somebody, I think in the, in the patient waiting room or something like that, watching at the, at the oncology company, you know, the Desperate Housewives or something like that, right? One of the, or, or, or the, you know, the, the Beverly Hills Housewives of whatever, right? And, yeah. and, you know, these, these people who are, are, are interesting people and, uh, you know, you can say what you will about them, but they, they're, they're like, I'm going to my therapist here and I'm going to my psychiatrist there. And they were talking about mental health in a way that was not with any sense of shame, which is how it shouldn't, it should be that way. Right. But that was, you know, 10 years ago, nine years ago, that was not the case generally in the populace. And so I started seeing, you know, life sometimes imitates uh, art, right? And not that I would call those shows art, but, uh, you know, the pop culture sort of like, I think this is going to trickle down. So there's going to be a stigma reduction. There's going to be more focus from, from, health pay, from health insurance companies and from health systems who are now taking on more risk. And we have to build something that solves the problems for the therapist. And by doing so, we can provide a much better solution for the client. No, it, it sounds, uh, you know, spot on, certainly in, in retrospect. I know uh, I notice in a, in the younger generation, let's say teens, you know, completely, it's almost everyone has yeah. a therapist and it's almost like you have a phone, you know, you have a phone, you put that out there and you have a therapist, you, you have that. And so the, the stigma is totally uh, gone. You feel maybe there's something wrong with you if you, if you don't That's have right. a therapist. Um, and then I had uh, actually helped somebody to find a therapist and, you know, they said they, well, they got... Uh, 
They got two names from their doctor and they called them and, you know, nobody called yeah. them back. And it's like, give me 30 <laughs> names. And I called all 30. And because uh, I knew it was sort of like what you had described and you, know, you had the whole panoply of, uh, you know, not taking patients. Uh, maybe they're going to have an opening at some point. Uh, insurance, I don't know. Uh, and then, you know, never mind, did they actually deal with this this type of thing, which had to do with adolescence. Yeah. And that's just crazy. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, this is this is today. This is 2021. Right. So no doubt some some opportunities. So so where do you go, you know, from here? Like, how do you actually get your arms around? So the problem is there, you know, what's the what's the solution? And you're not going to solve it all at once. So how, how do you figure out if you're making progress? What, what are the indicators? Because there's also not a lot of quality that's, indicators. As far that's as exactly can. right. Our, our, our mission, Sondermine's mission, is to redesign mental and behavioral health through improved access utilization and clinical outcomes. And we, we take each of those three tenets, access, utilization of care, and clinical outcomes, equally in, in, important. So... For us, we measure quality. So there are clinically validated assessments that patients can fill out. Things like GAD7 for uh, anxiety, PHQ9, which is a nine question questionnaire for depression. Uh, there's things for maternal mental health, postpartum depression, things like that. So those are clinically objective measurements of, of quality and care because you can see how patients are tracking toward it. I actually would argue that you know, that's a little suspect because it's a it's a self-reported questionnaire, right? So it's, in my opinion, it's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a data guy. It's not it's not totally objective because it's, you know, it's driven by somebody answering questions. But it's part kind of the, some of the best things we have right now. Our vision is really to say, hey, let's take those, you know, sort of objective, you know, subjective, maybe they're on the fence, subjective, objective measures. Let's take very subjective measures, like just how are you feeling today, kind of mood tracking type things. Let's take very objective measures, right? How many visits did you have with a clinician? How was the, what was the length of stay? Uh, you know, uh, what are other, other comorbidities or things like that that are, that are impacted or, not, or, or being improved upon? And let's pull all that together to actually build a quality score, which is what we do. So we have this quality scoring mechanism and that allows us to actually then understand, hey, who are the providers who are high quality, but it's not an objective, you're a good provider, you're a bad provider. What is often the case is that, you know, hey, you're a great therapist for the adolescent, you know, ages 13 to 19, dealing with this and that and the other. Maybe you're not that great for the senior citizen who's trying to deal with empty nester syndrome, right? Like totally different demographics, right? Even if it was the same sort of issue type or, or clinical diagnosis, if you will. Uh, so, that's something that's really unique to mental health because in physical health, you have an entire education system and testing system and fellowships and boards and things like that, that point doctors into the direction of who are they treating and what, you know, what, what, what demographic are they treating? Are you pediatrician or geriatric, right? And what body type are they treating? Right? Are you, you know, are you a urologist? Are you a, you know, internal medicine? Are you a neurologist? Are you a surgeon? You know, so even it's like patient type, anatomy, often diagnosis. Right? You have people who do infectious disease, things like that. Oncologists, right? So yeah. there's all these specialties that are very regimented. You know, like you wouldn't go to you wouldn't go to a urologist and say, hey, let me also check out and see what's going on in your brain scan. And you're like, no, 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 wrong part of the body, doc. Right? Like, yeah. And so, but in mental health. Generally speaking, it's sort of just open field, right? Now, most providers yeah. don't 
do everything and they don't see everybody and you know and they, they regulate themselves but as a as an individual looking for care you don't know who's good or bad at what and and you know and if they're just starting out at that thing and maybe they've been a provider for 20 years but they're just trying to do a new area uh and as a referring physician right if you're a primary care physician or something like that you know like you said a doctor that says hey here, here's a couple of names of some folks you may know that because you've got some anecdotal evidence but you don't have sort of really like broad you know high-end size data-driven evidence that this provider is really good at this and that and the other and that one's not so that's part of what we view our our vision is to really move the industry forward by giving a, a lot more data and credence to how providers can manage it and be you know be quality because we believe that they already are we just want to orient the right client or right patient to them so here we are and in, uh, going into the second year of the pandemic or this we should call it you know I don't know we want to want to say when we make the Gulf War analogy but you know in the first major pandemic of the 21st century here and to be followed by the second one shortly yeah. I assume but uh, what you know what are the new issues that are arising I'm sure we're going to talk about telehealth so um you know but what are you seeing certainly in terms of uh you know I think mental health stresses are reasonably well yeah. documented uh from the pandemic there's a big move to telehealth but you know sort of beyond that the headlines you know what are you seeing and is telehealth a panacea so let me. What I I actually look at look back on the last year and maybe look forward to hopefully only in the next six months or so and hopefully we come out of this you know with with some herd immunity sooner than later maybe before the end of 2021. So that's my hope, but that's just as a you know as a citizen here. Uh, yeah. I think the the pandemic really has had you know two pretty negative consequences for our mental health or, or driven you know driven by one is the social isol isolation right I mean we are. We are we are social creatures. Evolution has has created us as such, and so having the lack of engagement with others in the way that you know we are biologically equipped and, and to a certain degree mandated to has been very impactful for people. And and so and all that has done is aggravated other stressors, right? And so if you were in a you know low level of depression there's a high likelihood that you are now in a high level of depression, that you're at a clinical level of depression. So that's one of the huge, you know, we're, we're going to be, it, it's, it's, we've dug ourselves into a hole with this pandemic from a mental health standpoint. And then the other is, is actually, you know, people don't generally don't process change really well. Um, you actually saw it, you know, if you think about just, just anecdotally, you know, kind of consider the people you, you, you worked with that you're, you socialized with, a year ago, right? Let's say March of 2020, March to May of 2020, there was a lot of pushback, right? Against wearing masks. And, I, and let's take off the political piece of it, right? And let's just think about yeah. just inherent, like, ah, do we do this thing? And, and I don't want to change how many people weren't like, do I really need a social distance. Are, are we really not going to go into the office? And are schools really going to be shut down? All this sort of stuff. Fast forward just eight or nine months, right? And it's the opposite, right? You were like, you have to wear it everywhere. You have to, you, you, you're like, oh my gosh, I, I, I'm really worried about my kids going into school. I'm really, you know, I really don't want to go into the office and worry about it. This is because we're, we're equipped, you know, we, we want chaos. We, we want to want to manage the chaos by putting order in place and change is chaos. Right. And so just in our own animal brain. So that's the other impact is just the immense amount of change that we've had over the last year because of the pandemic and what's going to continue to happen. So I think those are the negatives that have really negatively impacted and, and exacerbated the mental health crisis that was already in existence in our country. 
One of the positives, though, to look for some silver lining is the stigma reduction. You know, we, we talked, we just talked about that, right? That kids, you know, my, they maybe a generation, you know, of, of, you know, 15 to 25 year olds, there wasn't that much stigma. But I would say that the amount of people who now, you know, who are in their 50s and 60s who would have never spoken about therapy are willing to speak about it is dramatic. It's dramatically different than a year ago. And we were already on a really good slope kind of from, from stigma being reduced over the last five, 10 years, but it has accelerated it tremendously. So that's a real positive, I think, that's come out of the pandemic. So telehealth, fan? I am, but I'm not, a, I'm not I, I don't see it as a panacea, to use your words. So we have always built the business on this idea that we're here to provide excellent care. We're here to enable our therapists to provide the best possible high quality outcomes as a network providers for clients in need of care. Now, if you say me therapist, the best way I can do that for this client is in person. Okay. If another one says the best way I can do that is over video. Okay. But the reality is most providers say, Hey, a mix is actually the best because sometimes that client can't make it in. Yeah, I'm in Denver. We just had a snowstorm last week. School was canceled on Thursday last week. People, you know, let's say if this wasn't COVID, when people were just used to not going anywhere anyway, uh, you know, they would have they would have canceled appointments, right? Or a therapist would have canceled them. Now what happens? They can keep them, right? They can keep that care schedule going. Uh, you know, you can provide, telehealth opens up access points for people in other markets, right? In rural areas, as an example, where there might not be a high population of, of therapists, or more specifically, there might not be a high population of therapists who focus on each of those individual needs, right? Like if you go in rural markets, there might be a primary care doctor, but you have to go into the city to see the oncologist, right? If, if you're out in who knows where Montana, you got to go into Billings to go get your oncology treatment. You can't have it out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, therapy kind of similar, it, it opens up that accessibility and it increases utilization. So our view, in my view, is that ultimately we'll see we'll see this hybridization. This is where we're, we're you know, we, we, we consider ourselves a fully hybrid model, right? Our therapists offer in-person, they offer text therapy all on our platform, they offer video all on our platform. And so it's about getting appropriate care, not the modality of care. There's the risk though, as we see now in this environment, you know, even in a work environment, I, was, I sent an article to my company about Zoom fatigue. There's a lot of research around this, right? Yeah. Like, you know, there's just the, the, the lack of ability to get up and walk around, um, the lack of sort of, you know, human interaction that happens, you know, when you're in person uh, is, is tiring. So I think that there's actually going to be higher burnout propensity for therapists who are engaging in fully, you know, in full video, full telehealth practice environments. I can believe that. So how's your business going? It's been going great. We had, I mean, you know, we've been on a really strong growth curve for the past you know, two or three years. It's interesting. I actually say that 2020 for us had probably as many headwinds as it had tailwinds. So again, at this time last year, you know, and, and this is where the beginning of March, 2021. So in, in beginning of March, 2020, all of our therapy from all of our therapists, or I'll say 98% was delivered in person. Yeah. 
So what did we do? So and actually in by April, in the month of April, 2020, 93% of all of our therapy was delivered over our video, it was over video platform. And we built, we had been building our own platform for a few months, you know, about six months previous to that. So we were already, we'd already made it, we had actually already launched our, our text messaging platform, uh, you know, for, for text therapy. But the, the change that that, you know, created for us as a business was, was, you know, challenging. And we've grown materially from a headcount standpoint. So the company has increased, you know, threefold, uh, where the vast majority of those new hires have been hired in a remote environment. All that said, we're treating, you know, now tens of thousands of clients every month. And we have thousands of providers. And, uh, you know, they're, we have, we're, 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 almost all of our providers or almost all of our clients are utilizing their in-network insurance benefits, right? And so we're achieving that mission, right? We're achieving the ability to provide improved access, improved utilization of care, and we're tracking quality outcomes. So we can see, we can definitively say when a patient comes in the door with a clinical level of depression in less than 10 weeks, they will have a subclinical level of depression. And that's across our entire population and, and, and other, and, and other sort of forms of tracking quality. Great. I have to ask, what what does the name mean, Sondermind? So when I was founding, so Sean Boyd was my co-founder. He's a therapist himself. And when we were founding the company, we we wanted to find something that, you know, this is back in 2014. The stigma thing was real then. And again, it's still real now, but it was really real then. We didn't want a word that was like psych or thera or counsel or any of these things that just put you right into right into that stigma bucket. Um, and we didn't want to go all the way in the other direction of, hey, we want something that's wellness, you know, very like kind of holistic, your health, just like these are too, too yeah. nondescript. So mind was actually the first one. Mind is like, it's that's that's it. We like the mind piece. Yeah. And then mind is good. Sonder has these two etymologies, right? In German, it means special. And in French, it means essentially to, to probe. So when you kind of think about our business model, we have... You know, we, we have two sets of customers, right? We have clients and therapists. And our clients have a special mind. And our therapists are probing the mind, right? What is therapy if not probing in the mind, right? And so it, it was a really kind of nice, nice mix of what we were really aiming to do. That's no, good. I wonder what, if you did a survey, what people would think about it. I, I could see, you know, it's like sounder mind, but we took that, the U out of That's the first thing my dad said. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or sand, sander mind. We sort of sand the mind down, or yeah. you, know, you can go from there. But anyway, it's a good, it's a good name, and and uh, I think relatively easy to uh, to spell for people. So that's so that's good. Well, let me just shift on to my last question that I ask uh, everybody who's a who's a guest here. And uh, what are you reading these days? Today, I'm in the middle of a book called Twelve Rules for Life: An Antidote to Chaos. It's by Jordan Peterson. A recommendation from. Uh, as actually a gift from somebody, and I got the gift about three weeks before I got a recommendation from one of my board members. It's great. I just finished uh, a couple weeks ago. I finished. Uh, you should talk to somebody by Lori Gottlieb, and uh, before that, a book called Range, which was a really, a really interesting book about um, specialists and generalists. And then the next on the list, uh, I have to look at it because I don't want to mess up the name. Is a gift I got from somebody. I try to shift kind of my, the genres a little bit. Uh, the the next one is a story of family fine bourbon and the things that last, Pappy Land. 
so it's uh, about you know the uh happy van winkle the you know um the really good bourbon so it's a i haven't started reading yet but that was a gift from one of my one of my team members yeah, good. So we were chatting before the show, and it sounds like you've got a challenge in the household to uh, to read a, a certain number of books, and you're you're on you're on track. But you enjoy I enjoy being being on being track, track so. and I, I enjoy reading. Although it's <laughs> definitely busy, you know, running a company and uh, and trying to grow and trying to achieve the mission that we're trying to achieve here. Great. Well, Mark Frank, co-founder and CEO of Sondermind, thank you very much for your time and your insights today. Thank you. Oh, it's really great to be on. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.